1: Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today for the Genocide Studies series, my guest is Bedros Dermatosian. Bedros is the editor of Denial of Genocides in the 21st Century, published by University of Nebraska Press in 2023. Throughout the 21st century, genocide denial has evolved and adapted the new strategies to augment and complement established modes of denial. In addition to outright negation, denial of genocide encompasses a range of techniques, including disputes over numbers, contestation of legal definition, blaming the victim, and various modes of intimidation such as threats of legal action. Arguably, the most effective strategy has been denial through the purposeful creation of misinformation. Denial of genocide in the 21st century brings together leading scholars, mostly historians, from across disciplines to add to the body of genocide scholarship that is challenged by denialist literature. So, By concentrating on factors such as the role of communications and news media, global and national social networks, the weaponization of information by authoritarian regimes and political parties, court cases in the United States and Europe, freedom of speech and postmodernist thought. this volume discusses how genocide denial is becoming a fact of daily life in the twenty-first century. Before we begin the interview, however, I think it's important to quote from the very first page of the book, to all victims of genocide and their descendants, still have to endure shameless denial of her genocide. First things first, Bedros, welcome. Thank
0: you, Roberto, for interviewing me for the second time.
1: I think actually this is the third time. Uh, the first time was for my own podcast, Jerusalem Unplugged, so I guess oh, you yes, are, yes, 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 uh, yes. I guess we can say you are a regular, certainly the guest I interviewed the most. Let me start with a question about yourself and a broader question about the origins of the book, and perhaps you can elaborate about the process of putting together the scholars and how you organize the volume and decide on which topics to cover for uh, denial of genocides in the 21st century.
0: Yes, uh, as you know, Roberto, I was born and raised in East Jerusalem. Graduated from the Hebrew University and came to Columbia, got my PhD and then went to MIT for two years and then got this position at the, you know, uh, fantastic position here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where I'm now a full professor of modern Middle East history and Hyman Rosenberg professor in Judaic studies. Uh, My areas of interest are in general modern Middle East history, uh, comparative genocide, ethnic violence in the late Ottoman Empire, and uh, Palestinian history. So uh, this actually, this was supposed to be a conference, the book uh, conference, and uh, we were uh, we were planning to do a conference here uh, at in 2020 when COVID hit, and the conference was cancelled. So uh, and I decided I'm not going to give up. I'm going to edit a volume, uh, regardless whether the conference is going to take place or not. And so some of the uh, chapters uh, of this book are titles that were going to be in the conference. Now, of course, putting a book as such is very difficult because uh, it entails writing to authors, asking them to contribute chapters into the volume. Some of them are busy, others uh, are not, uh, other, others have time, they were will willingly to do so. But coming to the question as to why is it confined to these genocides, uh, I have to tell I have to I have to say I, I tried a lot to bring other uh, genocides into the picture, but uh, due to time restraints, the authors have declined. I had in mind the Bangladesh genocide, nineteen seventy-one. I had in mind other Latin American genocides, I had in mind the crimes perpetrated by Japan against China, and the denial of the uh, uh, Japanese society of its crimes and the uh, uh, valorizing of its heroes, quote-unquote heroes, who perpetrated these crimes until today. I had other uh, aims in in mind but we we are we were confined to these uh, chapters and i say as i say in the introduction of the chapter the, these are just samples i mean these are this is i never i never agree that there is a book which is should be a definitive history of anything these are samples of genocide denials in the 21st century
1: in my mind genocide denial has been very popularized in the past two decades or so, probably due to social media, fast communication, misinformation, as you argue. But I also noticed that during COVID, in particular with the NoVax movement, uh, a number of these uh, uh, sort of denialists have become more popular, popularized, almost mainstream. And I was wondering if here you can start discussing the question of definitions. You know, what does... uh, genocide denial means, and uh, how did contributors of the book see this particular issue?
0: Of course, uh, uh, Roberto, uh, denial of genocide is the, uh, is denial of crimes that have been perpetrated by the perpetrators and their descendants. But denial, to uh, according to Gregory Stanton, for example, who is a Holocaust, uh, sorry, a genocide scholar, he says that there are. 10 stages of for genocide. The first one is classification, followed by symbolization, discrimination, dehumanization, organization, polarization, perpetration, persecution, extermination, and denial. All right. So denial follows the extermination path following the extermination. And denial does not mean that it, it entails that, it means that the genocide has not ended. So denial is not only the reluctance to acknowledge the historical injustices of the past, but it further aims to killing the dead and their memory over and over, inflicting pain on the survivors and their descendants, and demonstrating the future acts of violence are possible in a climate of deception and impunity. And I argue in the book that by denying genocides, both states and non-state actors become complicit in the process of genocide, transmuting the violence from the physical to the psychological plane. Imagine the traumatic effect of the descendants when they are encountering denialism on a daily basis. So denialists now become ideological as well as biological descendants of the perpetrators. They continue the process through print and audiovisual material, desecration of genocide monuments and the exertion of pressure on different governments in order to prevent, through lobbying, through exerting pressure, the passage of the concept of genocide. And as I argue in the book, the most important example of a denialist state is that of Turkey, which spends millions of dollars, uses it as a policy, foreign policy, internal policy and foreign policy through mobilizing both the foreign ministry, cultural centers, consulates student associations and for example when i did the centennial for the armenian genocide here in 2015 the turkish consul uh, rushed from chicago actually came to unl to meet with the chancellor trying to understand what what is happening here and maybe put pressure in order to cancel the conference but he was not it was uh, not successful now all the authors in this book agree that there is something a new phase here in twenty first century. A new phase in which now denial has taken a new attire. It's the age of social network. It's the age of internet. It's the age of misinformation. It's the age of uh, it's the age of producing so called historical scholarship. It's the age of the rise of right wing governments both in the Western hemisphere, specifically United States during Trump's period, but also in many other European countries, such as Austria, Hungary, uh, Italy, and many other countries in which now right-wing groups are rallying behind genocide denial, but also most prominent would be the Holocaust denier. Even in the United States, you have the rise of uh, Proud Boys, QAnon conspiracy theories and all of these are, and this is happening also as you mentioned during the COVID period, and there are a lot of conspiracies are going around about the Jews are behind this, Jews are behind that, and there wasn't Holocaust. Holocaust is a farce, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So you see these types of denialisms are emerging in different parts of the of the globe, not only confined to the Holocaust denial, but also but also encompasses in it other. Uh, denial of uh, genocide.
1: Looking back at the images of uh, January 6, United States Capitol attack uh, that took place in 2021, there is some sort of a dark irony. You have individuals who are generally known as denialists. They would deny the Holocaust or downplay the Holocaust, claiming that the numbers are not correct. And at the same time, and this is the irony, wearing t-shirts saying six million were not enough, implying that six million Jews were not enough to be murdered during the Holocaust. And I found that extremely ironic, obviously very dark, ironically speaking. Now, you already talked about uh, why the reasons why a book on denialism in the 21st century is important, but I was wondering if you can go deeper and tell us more about the necessity of such a work. And also, perhaps, you can tackle the question about uh, the denialists. Who are they? What do they want? So, uh, in this volume, uh,
0: uh, I discuss, uh, the book volume discusses some of the ongoing denial mechanisms of some of the most horrendous genocide, as I said. And uh, there, of course, there is no genocide in the course of history that has gone without being denied by states and non-state actors. Often including quote unquote professional historians and pseudo historians, though I divide them into these denialists into state and non state actors. Even the Holocaust, for example, with the, with its all uh, audiovisual proofs, it's still being denied by individuals and handful of states. So uh, the denialists are uh, states, state backed projects the uh, non-state actors are individuals who are uh quote-unquote legitimate scholars using the cloak of uh scholarship in order to uh present something uh on the uh on the uh, from the perspective of both sideism instead you know, it was war uh, they were killed we killed they killed etc And there are many techniques of denying the genocide. And you have also individuals who are connected to states, such as the uh, Turkish state, who have uh, reputable positions in legitimate uh, universities here in the United States or in Europe. And so, uh, but again, there is sometimes these denialists are dormant. But when the political atmosphere Changes and the right-wing groups come into the front. You see them. Uh, you see them uh, rising into power. For example, in Turkey, uh, situation is worse today than it was 20 years ago in terms of the Armenian genocide denial. Uh, the municipality prevented the, uh, for the second time, I think, for the commemoration of the genocide in the Taksim Square. And the other day I saw uh, Doğu Pirinchik, who was who's a major denialist and politician in Turkey, uh, give, taking oath with another 200 people denying, uh, their oath is about denying the Armenian genocide. So I don't see, uh, I'm not, optimist about what's happening within Turkey, I'm not optimist with, with what's happening around the globe in terms of denial of genocides, as long as we have political interests, underlying political interests, that obfuscate the, uh, the, uh, these governments to accept past historical injustices. For example, in the case of Guatemala, and that uh, uh, Samuel Totten discussed there is a, the denial of the genocide is not only by the government, but it was it's backed by Reagan's administration and the evangelical church. So you have these types of major governments who are backing, uh, of course, it's a Cold War period, we can say, but it's also during the post-Cold War period where you have uh, democratic governments supporting authoritarian governments and they're covering their past injustices or genocides against indigenous native population. And mind you, uh, Roberto, that this is not only in the case of uh, authoritarian or semi-authoritarian government. Denial of genocides is a policy of democratic countries too against their own indigenous population. Case in mind is the indigenous genocides here in the course of 500 years against the uh, native population. I mean, we are, in the United States, we are uh, lagging behind as that of Canada and Australia. At least there was an official apology by these governments. And uh, uh, until now, there hasn't been any official apology towards the native population regarding the past phases of genocides that have taken place in this
1: country. Before discussing the various chapters, I just want to mention that even in my own country, Italy, there is essentially a state denial what we may call the uh, Libyan genocide between 1929 and 1934. Essentially, uh, I think roughly speaking 70,000 Libyan civilians were forcibly removed and massacred by Italian forces. And that has been forgotten mostly because of the events that occurred after the war. So the necessity to reestablish a democratic government in Italy, a post fascist government, but the price was that we conveniently forgotten what Italian forces did in Africa. And uh, to me, it's also personal because I I must admit that one of my grandfather I know for a fact served in Libya so I don't know whether he was directly involved or not mm-hmm. but but certainly there is this state aspect and we created this myth of Italians uh, you know we say italiani brava gente so Italians like are good people but it's a myth and yeah. uh, and unfortunately the whole system is designed to forget uh, forgot and uh, essentially move on move forward Uh, without any interest about what the Libyans had to say about it. And uh, what what you were just saying, really, uh, I think it's very important to remember there's a state element in many countries and sometimes also covered by democracy. Uh, And yet we have to deal with these uh, forms of genocides. I want to move forward and discuss the three chapters dedicated uh, to the Armenian genocide. So the chapters by uh, Sujian. Mamimogian, Mo- Mami hopefully I didn't know your name, and uh, Ben Aaron. And I was wondering if you can take us through the question of the Armenian genocide denial with a particular focus on the US and Israel. And of course, I mean, it is known,
0: I mean, people would ask why three chapters dedicated to the Armenian genocide. And uh, the reason is that it is the most denied genocide around the globe today. With the state pouring millions of dollars, using its, as I said, embassies, consulate, cultural centers, uh, student unions, etc., in order to mobilize them to uh, prevent any or protest any type of uh, any type of mentioning or lectures about the Armenian genocide, and to that extent, it is it needs more attention. I think that's why we've dedicated three chapters. To the uh, Armenian genocide. Now, uh, Talin Sujas' chapter is an important uh, chapter that deals with uh, uh, deals with the gen- genocide denial in the context of postcolonial studies. Uh, of course, one thing that we have to understand is that the denial of the genocide of the Armenian genocide took place at the, during the genocide itself. When the turkish government published in three languages this this intensive uh, book about called the aims aims of the armenian revolutionary parties by fabricating pictures uh, fabricating stories about the uh, armenians are uprising in order to topple the turkish government etc of course there were there was all genocides have a certain ...component of uprising, even the uh, Rwandan genocide, the RPF was uh, advancing, uh, the case of Serbia, the Bosnia too, and other genocides, they have uh, a component of uprising. But here you have the emergence of, uh, of uh, scholars, you know, post-colonial scholars, who would argue that, you know, we have to also think the way in which uh, European powers have contributed to the genocide. Of course. Europeans used and abused Armenians for their own the Armenian question for their own national imperial interest but does this mean that we move the move the uh, move the, uh, the responsibility away from the Ottoman government to the Europeans of course they also escalated the situation but in the case of Sujan's article she uh, she discusses, uh, for example, three published articles in the last two decades that challenge these strategies. She deconstructs the sophisticated nature of denial, uh, which uses now this denial covert and manipulative language in order to avoid. So it's a denial, but it's it's done in an academic way where you don't feel that it's a denial in section, the section second chapter by mark momigonian he discusses the way in which denialists have uh, sought refuge in by using the first amendment weaponizing the first amendment through a campaign of lawfare uh, by institutions and individuals in the united states so mainly you have now the Turkish Legal Defense Fund and other Turkish organizations or individuals to the extent who would, who would sue you if your university is discussing that these are, for example, the literature, denials nice literature are the following. If you put those on your website as it happened in the case of Minnesota. So he discusses three such episodes of legal efforts by denialists to legitimize denialism under the umbrella of free speech which is protected by the First Amendment and actually this promote a counter view that uh, puts the denial of the Armenian genocide in as a matter of controversial topic all right so once you create a controversial topics it means that it is not a denial it, it is not a genocide it is still debated whether it's genocide or not so shedding light putting the seeds of doubt, Through in the legal framework, and uh, the judges would come, and of course, judges wouldn't wouldn't decide whether it was a genocide or not genocide, because that's not the task of uh, federal judges or local courts here. Their you know their first aim, I think, is to protect the First Amendment, freedom of speech. Last but not least is Eldad Ben Aharon's article, which is an interesting article. I mean. Israel has oscillate, oscillated between active denial to, uh, to passive denial of the Armenian genocide. and that has been in the course of the past 50 years. Uh, Mark David Baer published a fantastic book uh, called The Sultanic Savior, in which I'm sure you know, but it, in which he discusses the law of Turkish Jewry, and of Israeli government and interest groups in making sure that the Armenian Genocide Bill does not pass in the Congress, all right? But here in this article, Ben Aharon discusses the way in which the Armenian Genocide has been used and abused by the Israeli political system, by the government, whatever the situation in the uh, between Turkey and Israel has been deteriorated, specifically uh, during the Marmara incident. And he raises the question as to why, in the 2020, you have uh, such a lengthy bill, such massive attempts by the Israeli uh, Knesset members or others to pass the bill. But his argument is that it's not only about the political uh, political interest uh it, 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 he argues that when a Knesset member tries to pass put a bill on the Armenian genocide, he is sure that it's not going to pass and he attributes the, attributes this to the structure of the uh, political system in Israel, how the passing of a bill would be hindered by the problematic system of checks and balances, and then the government's firm grip on the parliament. So in the end of the day, the government has the upper hand when it comes to bills within the government, because think of it, it's a a multi-party system. It's not like Democrat and, uh, you know, it's a Democrat or Republican. It's a multi-party system, and the governments have an upper hand in passing the bills or not, and since then... Since, you know, since the issue became a matter of a scandal in 1981, 82, actually, when a genocide conference was going to be held in, in Tel Aviv University, there was a panel about the Armenian genocide. Turkish foreign ministry put pressure on the Israeli
1: government. Since then,
0: Israel has been using and abusing the Armenian genocide in order to achieve its goals.
1: We are both sitting in the United States, so I want to go back to chapter one, written by Robert Hitchcock, and discussing the denial of genocide of indigenous people. Of course,
0: I mean, denial of the indigenous genocide is very rampant here in the United States. Uh, I mean, you would start from the high schools, actually, where uh, where where genocide is not mentioned even within these uh, high school uh, textbooks and uh, the uh, and i would say the denial of indigenous genocide falls under the category of denial by a democratic government uh, of uh, of in in the case of united states for example lauren witt and alan clark which you mentioned the quote at the beginning uh, coined the term domestic genocide denial domestic genocide denial to describe systematic denial of genocide in the United States and Canada. And uh, so what we see among the denialists of these uh, countries or scholars is that uh, uh, they highlight the role of diseases rather than human agency in the decimation or the depopulation of indigenous North America uh, population of Indonesian, indigenous North, North America. So their theory is the virgin soil theory, quote unquote, virgin soil theory, which attributes the annihilation of the native population to activity of microbes and its smallpox. And you know all of this. It's present in the process as an inevitable one. But of course, you have other scholars in the United States, including uh, many uh, in, in state universities, who well, have challenged this approach by arguing that settler colonialism was essential to the disease process. And you know that settler colonialism is a, is, a, is a subfield within colonial studies. And there are some who argue that settler colonialism itself is equal to genocide. Settler colonialism would not be, does not, cannot exist without annihilating the local population. These scholars have criticized the virgin soil theory uh, and uh, emphasized contingency. They said that uh, that the, uh, the annihilation of the genocide uh, was contingent. Annihilation of the native population was contingent on the settler, colonial settlers. But you have increasingly scholars who are recognizing what happened to the native population. Some argue that what the ex- what happened in the past five hundred years constitute episodes of genocides because there are also episodes of massacres, but they term it episodes of genocides. But until today, there has no there has there has been no official apology by the U.S. government to the Native American. And Robert Hitchcock's article deals with this issue, which is the discusses the steps or the lack thereof taken by successive U.S. administration in the 21st century to deal with this issue. And he shows that this is not about Republican or Democrat. Both governments have taken steps in order to deny the native genocide. While other settler states, for example, Australia and Canada, have issued formal apologies, nothing similar has happened in the case of the native population. And he demonstrated in his article that, for example, the condition of Native Americans worsened during Trump's tenure with the, as you know, elimination of the sacred sites Cites the cutting of budgets, the construction of oil, uh, oil pipeline on indigenous land, among other discriminatory policies. Even going as far as, you know, supplying uh, masks during uh, COVID pandemic. He also discusses the history of physical and cultural genocide of the native population and these systematic acts designed to eliminate indigenous people were, also, of course, carried out as we know under the. Uh, title of uh, civilizing mission or spreading civilization. So, what's interesting in Hitchcock's article that he connects the denial of the uh, genocide to the current constant marginalization of indigenous people, regardless, as I said, of whether the government in power was or was the Democrat or a Republican.
1: I'm curious about something which probably is more your view uh, than the author's himself. I noticed that uh, in the past few years, a number of institutions, publications like your book, they add uh, statements acknowledging that uh, certain buildings you know, belonging to these institutions have been built on uh, Native American lands, you know, like the opening statement uh, in your book when it says the University of Nebraska Press is part of a land-grant institution with campuses and programs on the past, present, and future homelands of the Pawani, Punka, Otoe, Missouri, Omaha, Dakota, Lakota, Kocheyenne, and Arapao peoples. I-, I wonder if these uh, statements are a form of uh, apology or th- th- just some sort of uh, leaves, you know, fig leaves, uh, covering bigger issues, because I found it... Uh, you know, on one end, extremely important, but on the other hand, it feels like it's written in fine print, and normally, like uh, people don't really pay much attention to these kind of statements. Uh,
0: I think it's a form of acknowledgement and apology, and that's, a, I think, it's a very important symbolic issue to acknowledge that the land and on which the University of Nebraska is built belongs to uh, the Native population. And uh, University of Nebraska Lincoln has done a lot in order to acknowledge the uh, the native uh, 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 the native population. We have a great a great plain studies here, uh, which deals with the indigenous history. Our department has excellent uh, indigenous uh, uh, expert historians. Uh, The Great Plain is directed by Professor Margaret Jacobs, for example, uh, who is a world-renowned scholar on indigenous studies. And there is a major movement, I think, a very important uh, um, movement here at the University of Nebraska to uh, amend uh, the uh, past injustices that has been made against indigenous people, the minimum of which is to acknowledge the land grant and maximum of which would be initiate lectures, teach about it. You know, the minimum would be, we can do is to teach about it, teach about these injustices, teach about racism, teach about the way in which the indigenous population were decimated, annihilated, in order to, to understand, in order to teach the new generation as to what the country was built on. It's a settler, United States is a settler colonial country.
1: And talking about teaching, I just want to mention the fact that in probably since the beginning of the 21st century, we saw a rise in people denying the Shoah, the Holocaust, that occurred during World War II. And as much as uh, universities, but even high schools, are offering classes about the Holocaust, it seems that uh, the teaching of the subject is not enough to prevent this growth in the number of denialists and so denying the shoah the holocaust as we know is as old as the holocaust itself and so picking up from the chapter of Gerald steinacker can you give us a sense of the holocaust denialism that has been developing from the beginning of the 21st century Uh, yes uh, uh,
0: roberto i mean the only mass crime that's being taught in uh, the schools here in the United States is the Holocaust. Uh, unfortunately, I said, unfortunately, yet unfortunately, I think Holocaust should be taught in the, in the classes. But there are other genocides that took place in the course of 20th century, which are not being taught. And usually when students come to my Crimes Against Humanity or Race and Nation Genocide Seminar, they only know about the Holocaust and no other genocide. Uh, Steinacher is my colleague here, Professor Steinacher, world-renowned scholar on, of the Holocaust. Uh, his chapter is extremely important because he discusses the nature of the Holocaust denial in the 21st century and demonstrates how anti-Semitism, racism, and the denial of the Holocaust have all been on the increase in the United States in the 21st century, as evidenced, as we saw, by the riots at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021, the emergence of the Proud Boys and the spread of QAnon conspiracy theories. I mean, here's the thing, wearing shirts and uh, invading U.S. Capitol, wearing shirts that says six million Jews were not enough, what's what's the context? And I always say, I always ask my students, we have to ask ourselves why would you what why do we attribute every natural disaster, not natural but human-made disaster, to the Jews? The Jews who were behind it. I mean, this these conspiracy the- the theories were also uh, were also widespread during 9-11. You know, the conspiracy theories that Jews were behind 9-11, etc. You know, so these are these stem from uh, from a long, long, uh, long period of uh, long history of anti-Semitism, you know, racist anti-Semitism that began in the 19th century. Of, of course, anti-Semitism existed uh, in the course of history, but the 19th century we be, we begin with the uh, racist, uh, racial anti-Semitism. So we see the rise of right-wing populist governments in the United States, Europe, Australia, the Holocaust, and uh, it's no longer denial. He argues that denial of genocide does not only does no longer present a societal fringe, but have become active mainstream politics, specifically in Eastern European countries. Now, for example, Poland uh, passing uh, is adamant that the Polish population did not take part in the Holocaust. You know, so he argues that denial is a form of anti-Semitism and is deeply connected. To the belief in a conspiracy of Jewish global domination. And so this is becomes specifically dangerous at the age, in the age of internet, where internet has become a fountain of misinformation and cesspool of conspiracy theories about the Holocaust. This is not in the case of the Holocaust, but in the case of all our other genocides. And The increase he argues of the Holocaust denial is connected to the growth of anti-Semitism, neo-fascist movements across the globe. So here is an important aspect of that's not being discussed. We we tend to think we can we tend to use the concept of right-wing governments, but then uh, what's the connection between right-wing governments and fascist governments? There is a there is a connection there. Could it be that the right-wing government would eventually turn into fascist government. Uh, And this might happen uh, in a period or in a case of major financial crisis, major uh, uh, civil war, uh, immigration crisis. I mean, uh, here's the thing. I mean, there's a direct connection between between, uh, Syrian refugees and a rise of right wing whereas Ukrainian refugees are welcomed for example in o- o European open European doors open for the Ukrainian refugees whereas Syrians fleeing through Turkey are prevented to enter Europe because of their uh, religion and identity
1: i want to move forward with uh, the other chapters of the book and uh, the remaining uh, contributions focus on genocides that occurred in Cambodia Bosnia Guatemala Rwanda And lastly, in Syria. Now, I know it's a lot, but, you know, given the time we have, I was wondering if you can try to go through these chapters, and I like the question of denialism in this context, particularly in the 21st century.
0: Of course, in the case of uh, Ben Kiernan's article, uh, the denial of the uh, Khmer Rouge genocide, he argues that that denial, which took place in the... In the uh in the uh during the Cold War period 1975 79 uh, uh its denial actually led to the second Khmer Rouge genocide which took place 1992 1993 many don't know that the second genocide uh, transpired in this period and it was based on denial and we're not talking about denial by, by only by the Khmer Rouge uh, regime but they were also international. Uh, supporters of the regime there were uh U.S uh, U.S um, scholars who also supported the U.S regime against the uh against the uh, uh so, supported the Khmer Rouge regime against the U.S policies and he argues that the uh, that the second genocide and its denial have fallen into oblivion even though beginning in 2006, United Nations sponsored trials for surviving Khmer Rouge leaders. And, you know, these trials are, I know it's symbolic, but it comes towards the end. I mean, these people are Khmer Rouge leaders, are 90 years old, so what is left to to try them? So his article demonstrates the grim fact that the denial of genocide and lack of punishment emboldens the perpetrators to commit further genocide. So his article deals with the denial of the Khmer Rouge genocide in 1975 to 79, leading to the second wave of genocide and the way in which that denial continued in the 20th century until the United Nations put together a court to try the perpetrators. Uh, In the case of Samuel Totten, it's a very important article which deals with the denial of the Guatemalan genocide, Uh, uh, perpetrated during the regime of Efrain Rios Mons, whose cover-up was not only supported by his government, but by the U.S. administration under President Ronald Reagan and the actions of the Guatemalan and American evangelicals. Uh, And so all of these groups actually played a role in covering up the decimation of the Mayan indigenous population by the military. This is extremely important. Again, as I discussed at the beginning, U.S. governments are do-back, sometimes governments, who are, who, whose hand is full with blood or in blood in order to preserve their national interest. Yelena's sabotage article is also extremely important, which discusses the regional political implications of the Boston genocide denial. Uh, she discusses the ways in which denial of the both the genocide, genocide in both Serbia and the Republika Sparska or have taken uh, shape in the twenty-first century, and this denial, she argues, is used to bolster the independence of the Republika Srpska. And this denial, we're talking about the Srebrenica massacres, which are part of a larger genocides. She demonstrates in the article how Bosnian elites. Resistors the international justice mechanism such as the ICTY, International Criminal Tribunal of Yugoslavia, due to their fear that the course would lead to the abolition of Republika Srpska. This is the small republic within Bosnia that uh, played an important role during the genocide. The article by... Uh, Roland Moreland, actually, about the denial of the uh, Rwandan genocide, concentrates on one book, which is Judy Revere's controversial book titled, In Praise of Blood, The Crimes of the Rwandan Patriotic Front. Of course, no one is denying that the RPF committed some crimes. But putting that in the same level, equating that into the the same level of the Rwandan genocide, it would be, it would make history, it it is a historical fallacy. But what's unique about this book that uh, Moreland contributes a whole article is that it was published by Penguin Random House in 2018. So here you have a denialist book that's published by a prestigious press globally known. Roland actually assesses the complexities of Reaver's argument of, again, the denialist tactic of both sideism, you know? They did, we did, they killed, we killed, and etc. And the problem of the lack of concrete definition of what genocide denial is. So he argues that it is that the significance in Praise of Blood, the book, lies in the fact that it was published, as I said, by mainstream publishing house Uh, and he he says he contends that it is important to acknowledge other crimes but how do how to present how to do that when you have a genocide in which 800,000 people were killed at the same time when RPFs have committed crimes against thousands of people and how to do that without falling into the trap of denial of the much greater Hutu power genocide. The last article in the volume is by a uh, uh, prominent genocide scholar and Ansar Shahud. They examine the denial of the crimes perpetrated by the Assad regime against its own civilian in the ongoing conflict in Syria. One thing I'd like to reiterate here that the that the the concept of genocide in this book it has uh, has a softer softer definition. The the genocide has softer and harder definition. The harder definition is mainly sticking to the UN convention of uh, definition of genocide. The softer definition is to include other groups in it. And of course, as you know, the UN convention is mostly the result of compromise by the great power in order to avoid them being, them being prosecuted for crimes that they have committed against their own population. So in this article, both Ungur and Shahud actually depict the crimes perpetrated by the regime, Bashar al-Assad regimes, and the way in which this regime uses, in 21st century media, uses the media to develop a sophisticated and steady policy of denial for both internal consumption and external consum- consumption. And they show that this policy is carried out not only by government actors and their satellites, but also academicians, cultural figures, and apologists within Syria and abroad. So we have now similar to the case of the Turkish denial, it's not only that embassies, consulates or diplomats are being uh, mobilized. It's also cultural figures, academicians, and all of this play a dominant role in the in the network, larger network. And as you know, uh, Roberto, now people are, countries are now now uh, reestablishing their relations with Syria, Saudi Arabia, renormalization of the relations of, of Saudi Arabia, and then we don't know how many crimes of uh, against humanity or genocide has been taken a place in Syria, uh, Syria is in power due to the support of Russia and Iran.
1: Talking about genocide is always complicated and I really wanted to ask you, from a personal perspective, how did you cope, um, you know, professionally speaking, dealing with such a amount of violence and uh, dystopian reality in a sense that, you know, people denying genocides are essentially making up a new reality? How does the process of writing uh, work for you as an editor, but also as a contributor?
0: It's a, I should, I should say—it's a very difficult process because you have to, you have to distance yourself from your emotions and keep your academic standards. You know, because once you start uh, mixing your emotions into the writing, it would lead to it would become counterproductive. So be. Be, uh, try to be objective, because there is no such a thing of being objective. Try to be objective and to try to be keep distance and think that this is not the the crimes against humanities, crimes of war or genocide did not only happen against Armenians, for example. It happened, not happened against my grandparents or great-grandparents, but also happened in different countries. Different groups, regardless of their Jews, Muslims, or Christians, and that it is a task of scholars of genocide to address these issues in an academic standards. But what drains your energy is fighting denialism, and this is something that I address in the book. You know, do we need to criminalize denial of genocide? Which, for example, some European countries do that. Some argue that we have to keep the First Amendment in uh, provide the First Amendment as a cover for, deni- den- uh, for, for example, denialists use First Amendment to express their opinions and you cannot argue counterwise. So I suggest I suggested in the book that is it time that we sh- should think of denial of genocide as a hate speech? The same way that you use uh, there are good returns to uh, certain groups in different countries should we consider denial of genocide as a hate speech. But it is never an easy task to deal with that. Uh, uh, for example, um, a prominent denialist of uh, of the Armenian genocide brought a lengthy but 13-page review of uh, one of my books on the, uh, on the on, on the Armenian massacres, of Adana, and uh, I, I didn't answer. I don't think it's it's really worth to waste your time in order to uh, rebuttal uh, rebuttal these arguments. But we know, for example, that now uh, denialists of Armenian genocide do not have cannot have uh, a podium in legitimate uh, international journals, uh, but they are be able to have access to such places as Routledge, uh, such places as, uh, I was very surprised to find that Edinburgh University Press published Justin McCarthy's uh, latest book. Well, McCarthy is known to be a major, de- no, key, one of the key figures of denying the Armenian genocide. But it's ne- never an easy task. I think the only way we can do this is through eliminating through publishing as much as we can and teaching others who do not know about any of these genocides as to why genocide denial is dangerous, what can we learn from genocide denial,
1: and how should we combat genocide denial. Let me take to the epilogue of the book. The epilogue was written by Israel Charmy, and is a series of reflections, very important reflections, on the contribution of this book, and I was wondering if you can uh, just uh, summarize uh, you know some of his reflections for us uh, charney is a well known uh,
0: expert on denial of genocide he's a psychiatrist and uh, in his in his uh, summary he reflects on each of the articles assesses each of the articles in the book and he, he asks major questions uh, for example uh, he argues what does denial do for deniers Heart, mind, and soul—the ability, and I quote—of human beings to murder others excessively has long perplexed decent people. They ask, "How can someone smash a baby's brain against a wall, and then go home, go on home, and make love to a mate and convey caring for children?" End quote. And this is the new argument. This, 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 this started from the Holocaust literature, uh, specifically with with Christopher Browning's Ordinary Men. How do ordinary men are capable? To commit crime and heinous heinous crimes against uh, other victims, he, he asks that what are the psychological meanings and benefits for deniers who face survivors of the targeted victim people? He argues that genocide denial is powerfully satisfying further wishes to be supreme first, mock second, terrorize and kill others. As a psychologist, he has come, for example, to a definite conclusion that these impulses, whether denial or perpetrating of genocide, are and always, and I quote him, have been built in or instinctive components of our original basic construction, and that life's challenges is to overcome and rechannel these impulses toward their surprisingly constructive potential for being strong but decent. End quote. He argues also that genocide denial is a powerful protective mechanism on a deeper emotional levels to help people, both individuals and collectives, to get rid of moral responsibilities of shame and guilt or responsibility of making amends. And an interesting thing he says, that genocide denial helps people to be able to sleep when they have behaved abnormally. And of course, as I argue in the book, that the denialists of genocide or their descendants are continuing the genocide itself by denying it. Of course, there are major other other factors of denying of genocide, if your whole nation is built on genocide, then deconstructing the myth of, the, of your glorious nation would put into question the myth of making nation, the myth of the emergence of this great nation, whether it's Turkey, whether it's settler colonial states, whether it's Republica Sparska. Whether it's uh, 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 whether it's Rwanda or other places, it's going to question the myth of creating your nation. And most dominantly, we see this in the case of Turkey. It's not a it's it's not a, a passive denial. It's active denial. It's aggressively active denial, even sending letters to all types of. Scholars, whoever touches the word Armenian, the Turkish uh, associations here in the United States send an eight-page letter condemning their usage usage of the word genocide and then explaining, copy-paste in eight, nine pages as to why
1: it's not a genocide. I have one last question, and I'm very much interested in your views in relation to denialism in our current context, particularly moving forward. So how do you see this problem in the coming years and decades I'm
0: not an optimist as a a person. I think denialism is going to continue uh, if it's in the case of Turkey, if it's in the case of the Holocaust, if it's in the case of other genocide. And uh, with the rise of right-wing governments, with the rise of economic problems, with the rise of uh, war in Ukraine, with other refugee crises, we will see that Uh, Denial of genocide is going to uh, expand uh, countries that enjoy, that deniers enjoy the benefits of free speech. They're going to infiltrate more and more into mainstream publishing market with the aim of legitimizing their denial scholarship as part of an academic debate. So once you put denial of genocide as a part of an academic debate, then it would be a matter of shedding doubt that this has really happened. Think of BBC, for example. BBC, so much uh, people, so much uh, respect BBC supposedly, uh, but BBC never uses the, the word genocide in its, uh, you know, it's, it says Armenians say, Armenians say and Armenians say, until where well, Armenians are going to say. And another thing that we're going to see more and more is that denial of genocide is not going to be confined only small group. Uh, but it's going to be composed of strong movements infused with racism, bigotry against the victims and groups. This is not only a matter of anti-Semitism, this is a matter of anti-Armenianism and Islamophobia, among other types of hatreds. It's part of a larger feeling of xenophobia, conspiracy theories, And this is going to exceed and expand due to access to social network, the internet from, uh, we're going to see form of neo-fascism, neo-Nazism, and the spread of genocide denial. So uh, the, as I say, the only way that we, we can, fight against genocide denial is by spreading the knowledge about these genocide and why genocides are being denied and what can we do in order to combat combat genocide denial. Again, we have to think about, and this is a question or a comment to genocide scholars in general, or to historians in general, or academicians, social scientists, whether it's about time to think of genocide genocide denial as a type of
1: hate speech this was uh, Pedro Dermatosian editor of denial of genocides in the 21st century published by University of Nebraska Press in 2023 Pedro's, thank you so much thank you Roberto again